Back about 15 years ago, when I was getting treatment for depression, my doctor also tested to see if I might have symptoms of ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder. He might have asked your wife. <laughs> to the surprise of absolutely no one, especially myself, or maybe especially Barb, uh, I tested positive for several ADD traits, uh, especially getting stuck on how to integrate uh, my somewhat flexible relationship with time and tasks. This is oversharing. I'm in trouble. Uh, I was not quite ADD enough to be diagnosed clinically, but I am ADD enough to be incredibly frustrating to dear people in my life. Uh, and also delightfully creative, right? There's pros Something like that. I remembered my ADD diagnosis uh, when I read the texts uh, from the Book of Acts this week. And I was trying to find artwork to put on the cover of the bulletin. Now, I found this very cool bit from, from Salvador Dali. Uh, but one thing I found a lot of, if you do type out on Google looking for images for the Ascension, uh, there seemed to be about a 400-year period in Christian art that looked very similar when they were painting this scene. It tended to be very two-dimensional, and it was a bunch of disciples kind of staring up at the sky, mouths agape, uh, and in all the paintings, up at the top of the picture, right where the frame meets, are two Caucasian feet <laughs> dangling in midair, usually pierced, which, was meant to be a very serious painting, but when you go through about two dozen of those, they start to look a little silly, a little Monty Python-esque. And I found that after a few dozen of these, I was starting to get embarrassed about the story, and I realized I was getting a different kind of ADD. I was getting ascension deficit disorder because I was having a really hard time trying to integrate my relationship to this strange story that Luke wrote and these even stranger paintings that didn't seem to have anything to do with my reality. Maybe it's my science and engineering background, but when everyone's all concerned about Jesus going up, to heaven, I go, well, where, where's up? We, we live on a globe, man. Is up at, uh, in the constellation Ursa Major? And is then hell down towards, say, Alpha Centauri or New Jersey? And, and maybe you're similar. Maybe you, too, don't know what to do with that, with that cosmology that it feels like We've grown out of the up to heaven and the down to hell. If you too don't really know what to do with that, you too may have ascension deficit disorder. It is a holiday of the Christian church, and it happened this last week, but I think most Protestants miss it. 
And yet I think we're in pretty good company. Biblical scholars like N.T. Wright have argued that our um, colloquial visions of heaven up and hell below is much more a product of the writings of Dante than it is of anything that's in scripture. It's, about a, it's more of a pre-Christian paganism than it is about what Jesus was talking about. And it's notable that in the entire book of Acts, nobody says, let's be really good followers of Jesus so that we can die and go up to heaven to be with him. The book of Acts is the disciples getting busy doing the work of Jesus right here in the world. There's not a lot of afterlife in there. Being Jesus' witnesses in Samaria to the ends of the earth, which, which would includes include, Cambridge. Indeed. <clears throat> it seems pretty clear in the reading. Luke writes, The disciples were still gazing into the heavens when two messengers dressed in white stood beside them. You Galileans, why are you standing there looking up at the skies, they asked. My perhaps snarky understanding of the messenger's message is that maybe the disciples should snap their slack jaws closed wipe the drool off their chin or their shoes and look not up at the sky but look around at one another and a world that is desperately in need. Barbara Brown Taylor wrote that the church was born when the disciples stopped looking up and looked at each other and at the world and got to work. We say it every Sunday when we pray together. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as it is in heaven. On earth. On as earth it is as it is in heaven. Excuse me, that's right. Thy will be done as on earth as it is in heaven. That slipped out. And that your will be done here expresses a great longing in us, I believe, or at least it does in me for everything that is broken to be made whole, for this to be a place where God's will is real. And our friend Steve Garnis Holmes suggests that that longing, that desire for things to be of peace and of compassion and of justice in the world, that longing itself is where the ascended Jesus is found. And it's when we work to make that longing into action that the word is again made flesh, that we embody Jesus in us. Jeremiah speaks of that kind of work when he, he says to those exiles, I know this isn't your home, but seek the welfare of the city that you're in right now. Pray to the Lord for its behalf, because in its welfare is your welfare. Start looking around at what needs doing, and then do it. We shared a couple weeks ago about the tradition of our Jewish siblings. There's a Hebrew term for acting to meet that longing. In Hebrew, it's tikkun olam, which means repairing the world 
in cooperation with the divine will. Tikkun olam is a job description. It asks us to take stock of where we are and choose to be witnesses to love, witnesses to healing. We are called as disciples to embody Jesus' presence toward a future of reconciliation and restoration. So we want to share with you this morning the story of someone who is doing this with astounding power and grace. And that person is Brian Stevenson. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School, he, where he got his law and public policy degree. Um, maybe you've read his memoir, Just Mercy, or seen the movie with the same title that talks about Stevenson um, embarking on a journey to represent death row inmates, to give them the legal representation that frequently they did not have when they were first charged with their crimes. Like many of those death row inmates, Stevenson is black, and he says that he does not go to represent the death row inmates because they're innocent, a few of them are, but on the whole, they are guilty of their crime. He goes to represent them because on the whole, they have not had sufficient legal representation when they were charged with their crimes and so have ended up sometimes on death row. He says, I feel like capital punishment means those without the capital get the punishment. That's why he does this work. And Stevenson's work is powered by a bedrock belief in him that it is mercy and compassion that are the redemptive powers in the world. He doesn't believe that people shouldn't have consequences for what they do, and he argues that healing comes when those consequences sometimes come with unmerited mercy. He doesn't deny that people have done hard things, but he also says, we are each more than the worst thing we've ever done. That's in his writing a lot. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. Now, unsurprisingly, he was soon swamped with legal requests. And so he formed the Equal Justice Initiative to help spread this out around the country and meet the needs that are there in our incarceration system. And it was the Equal Justice Institute, or Equal Justice Initiative, excuse me, that in the early 2000s successfully brought a court cases to the Supreme Court so that the court found it unconstitutional to automatically give death sentences to children under the age of 18 or to automatically imprison them for life without possibility of parole. There needs to be mercy, Stevenson says. And he not only believes that about individuals, he also believes that about our nation. He knows that confession is necessary and important for healing, and that when confession is done well and is received in mercy, things that have been long broken can find a new wholeness. And so in addition to that legal work that he does on the behalf of folks who are poor and who are children, 
He also has created the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. It's more commonly known as the Lynching Memorial. And it's a memorial to those who have been lynched since the Civil War up through the Civil Rights Movement. In all of these ways, his legal work, his educational work, his memorial building work, I believe that Stevenson is engaged in tikkun olam, though he might not call it that. He's seeking to make this country a place a bit more compassionate, a bit more merciful, a bit more whole and full of grace. And it is hard and intense work. He talks about how he needs to offer his staff the support that they need for their own emotional well-being, and he needs that support as well. And so we want to share a story that we heard him tell a few years ago about one day when he was invited to come and sit and listen at a gathering of three great women of the civil rights movement. It was Rosa Parks and Virginia Durr, whose husband Clifford Durr had represented uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And Johnny Carr, who was a driving force behind the Montgomery bo bus boycott. <clears throat> that must have been an incredible meeting to be at. Uh, I imagine him sitting on the floor at their feet, though I expect he was probably in a chair. <laughs> Just absorbing these three amazing women. But here's Brian's description of that meeting. He wrote, I remember that day so clearly. I sat out on Ms. Dewar's porch with Rosa Parks and Miss Carr, and they just talked and talked and talked. And the unbelievable thing about their conversation was that none of them were talking about all the extraordinary things that they had done back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. You know, when Miss Parks left Montgomery, she went on to work with John Conyers. She went on to do a lot of work in the social justice movement. She was involved with Malcolm X. She was involved with a lot of people trying to advance racial equality after Montgomery. But they weren't talking about any of those past things. They were all talking about the things they still wanted to do. And there was this hopefulness in their conversation. And it was so powerful. And I was just there soaking it in. And so when Miss Park turned to me and asked, Okay, Brian, now tell me about the Equal Justice Initiative. Tell me what you're trying to do. It just came tumbling out of me. And I said, Well, we're trying to end the death penalty. We're trying to help people on death row. We're trying to challenge conditions of confinement. We're trying to help the mentally ill. We're trying to help children. We're trying to help the poor. And when I finished giving her my rap, she looked at me and she just said, mm, mm, mm. That's going to make you tired, tired, tired. And then Miss Carr said, Miss Carr leaned forward and said, and that's why you've got to be brave, brave, brave.
tired, tired, tired. Got to be brave, brave, brave. I'm beginning to wonder if another definition of ascension deficit disorder is how we look around at the world and how messed up it is and how much work we have to do. And we just do this because it makes us so tired, 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 so paralyzed, so stuck, stuck, stuck. Because if we look at it all at once, and if we look at it as the thing that I'm supposed to fix, it's all too, too, too much. And I think that's probably something of what the disciples felt as Jesus ascended and disappeared into the cloud and said, now you do what I've been doing. Too, too, too much. But here's the good news. Jesus did not leave the disciples bereft on earth. And he didn't just give them an impossible job description, be my witnesses to the end of the earth, even unto Cambridge, Massachusetts. Jesus also gifted the disciples with a promise that they would receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Enough power to make them brave, 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 even when they're tired, tired, tired. We will celebrate the coming of that power next week on Pentecost Sunday. Jesus promised the power of the Holy Spirit to his disciples. And it was that power they gave Rosa Parks and Ms. Dar and Joanne and Johnny Carr what they needed to pursue the civil rights movement. It's that power of the Holy Spirit that engages Brian Stevenson and all of the folk with whom he works to change the world. And it's the power of that Holy Spirit that is promised to you and to me as well. That's the promise, promise, promise. That in the midst of all that's broken, in the midst of all that's overwhelming, in the midst of all that's uncertain, God can work. God can work in us. God can work through us. And thank God, God can even work despite us. And in all of this, God works with us. God invites us to Tikkun Olam to be part of the healing, the repair of the world. And that's the best news of all. Our next hymn is number 2292 in the black. 82. Excuse me, 2282 in the black hymnal. I'll fly away. And 
Just an aside, this hymn I adore. Uh, and if you watched uh, the wonderful film, uh, O Brother, Where Art Thou, you know it. It may seem like it is saying exactly the opposite of everything we've just preached. But it is coming out of the pain of uh, agricultural economies where people felt they had no escape. So sing so it with gusto. this is a, a later conversation. It so does not disagree with what we just said. Does it not? <laughs> we'll have a discussion. <laughs>